Well, good morning, Oakwood family. Glad that you're here this morning with us. We are in a series that we started last week called Unto Us. Uh, last week we were in Isaiah chapter 7. Today we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there. And as always, if you want to follow along uh, with your phone or maybe you have an iPad or some other kind of tablet, uh, just download the Oakwood app and uh, go to sermon notes and all of the scriptures and everything will be there for you. Uh, but we want you to engage the word of God and, uh, and take notes or, or do whatever. Let God speak to you uh, this morning. And in this series, we're going to be looking at several passages and prophecies from the book of Isaiah and how they relate to the Christmas story and how they relate to the Christmas accounts that we read in, in Matthew's gospel and Luke's as well. And it's going to be a really, really uh, great series. So we're glad that you're here this morning. How many of you, by show of hands, we had a very honest crowd for service, so I was really appreciative of that. So let's be honest this morning. How many of you this holiday season have already felt like you were in a hurry or that you're behind or some kind of stress related to Christmas? Anybody? Oh, good. Honest people in God's church. That's good. Everyone else that didn't have their hand, they're a bunch of Pollyannas, man. Got it. They're just perfect. Got it all together. Uh, no, maybe they have a better coping mechanism than some of the rest of us. But, you know, it's kind of a tragedy, but it's true. We call it what? The hustle and the bustle of the holiday season, right? I don't even know what bustle is, but it's bad, okay? It's real bad. So we have the hustle and the bustle of the holiday season. We feel like we've got to go here. We've got to go do this. And, and sometimes I wonder if, at least from God's point of view, if we don't get a little bit out of sorts and a little bit out of whack in our priorities, did you ever think about that? That maybe when it's supposed to be the season of peace where we celebrate the Prince of Peace coming into the world and we're like, oh, we got to go here, we got to go here, I'm so stressed and I've got this and we got that and we, you know, we, fill our, we fill our calendars with maybe things that, that don't really matter or maybe things that God didn't intend for us to take on and, and we have all this, we got to get you know, to all of this different stuff and it just feels like it's hurried, right? And we sing all this Christmas music about things that aren't like that, you know, of all these peaceful Christmas songs, except some of them are really truthful. Give a listen to this one. And if, if you know it, I want you to sing it, follow along with the words on the screen, but check this song out. Call out the holly, put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill the stocking, I may be rushing things, but... What do you need? What do you need? You need a little Christmas. Right now. Do you feel the stress? I mean, that song's tempo is even stressful. And then it's like, oh, Santa, today we're in a hurry. and We've got to haul out the holly before my spirit falls again, you know. I mean, some of the lyrics in that song, but does that rain true? I mean, have you ever listened to that song? I think when we hear that song, we always focus on we need a little Christmas. We're like, yeah, yeah, we need a little Christmas. What about as that song goes on? Do you know the uh, second part of that song has a, a, a line in there that says, For I've grown a little leaner, grown a little colder, grown a little sadder and grown a little older. It's like, well, that's some positive Christmas messaging there, right? That's, that's what we're looking for. But maybe the song actually echoes some of the sentiments of the holidays for us because we're in such a hurry. And the main thing I think is that we don't want to miss because of pulling out the holly and 
you know, decorating and, and going to the thing and got to go to this and, and, and going here, there, that we miss. You just, you'll blink and it'll be like December 28th. You're like, oh, Christmas was th- this year and I missed it again. I missed the whole Jesus thing. I missed the Son of God coming into the world because I was so busy with all of these other things to the point that it was even stressful and I don't think that's the way that God intends it. Well, today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9 as we continue in this series. Now, last week, Isaiah chapter 7, the big reveal was that there would be a virgin that would conceive supernaturally, miraculously. This virgin would conceive a child, and then that child's name would be Emmanuel. And that word Emmanuel, that name Emmanuel, means that God is with us. And it was the incarnation. It was God coming into the world, God taking on the form of man, to ultimately to do what? To just do a cool miraculous thing or to draw glory into himself? No, it's to save the world. It's part of the salvation plan for every person. Is God is extending us a lifeline. It's a life preserver. It's the form of his son, Jesus. And today, as we read this passage from Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to learn a little bit more about who this anointed child will be. So Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to begin with verse 1, says this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Hallelujah, right? In the past, he humbled the land of the Zebulun and the land of the Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. It's talking about God, God's work through Jesus, what he's going to do here. Verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And maybe this next verse, verse 6, you've heard in Handel's Messiah. Maybe you've heard it in that Christmas song. This is where it comes from. It says, for to us, or some translations, unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no End And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice, with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What a great passage foreshadowing the hope that would come on that Christmas night when Jesus came into the world. So what does this prophetic passage tell us? about the Messiah. What can we learn uh, from it today? I want to share several uh, thoughts with you this morning. First one is this. He, being Jesus, the baby Jesus, he will be the incarnation of God and will have rule over the world. He will be the incarnation of God, so God coming in the form of man, and will have rule over the world. 
We, we get this idea from the last part of verse 6. It says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And also in verse 7, it says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the word government there, I think of the United States government. That's, that's what I think of. It's like the government will be on his shoulders. So, you know, the presidency, the House of Representatives, and the, and the Senate, the judicial system will be upon his shoulders. But when you actually uh, read and understand what, what, what that word is there in the Old Testament Hebrew, it, it actually gives us this idea of dominion. It gives us this idea of rule, reign, dominion, authority, and his dominion will be upon his shoulders. And it says, and the greatness of his dominion, his rule, his authority in the world, and peace, there will be no end to it. His kingdom will last forever, and he will be the incarnation of God and will have rule over the world. Now, building on what we talked about last week in Isaiah chapter 7, you kind of understand why this is a big deal. Because the nation's in disarray, there's so much going on, there's so much sinfulness and darkness and rebellion in the world from, from even God's chosen nation, Israel. It was time, it was time for a change. It was time, and they were longing for a, a new ruler to come into the kingdom. And Israel was looking forward to the, to the time of the Messiah and, and these prophecies 700 years before the actual birth of the Son of God are, are foreshadowing and telling about this kingdom. But when Jesus came, I think it threw a lot of Israel for a curve. Because I really think what they were looking forward to is someone to come in on a stallion in full body armor with a spear and just take out all the evil, take out all the oppressors, take out just everything that's wrong with this world, just take it all out, kill it, wipe it out, and start all over again. And I think they were wanting this mighty, this mighty ruler that was going to come. And, and Jesus was mighty, don't get me wrong. I mean, we're going to talk about it later. I mean, in, in this passage in verse 6, he's called the mighty God. But his might makes its appearance in a different way than man wanted, in a different way than the nation of Israel wanted. You know, there were times where they were in exile and they wanted the Assyrians and the Babylonians off their back. They wanted to be rescued and delivered. You, you know, of the times when Israel was going into the promised land and God says, go into the promised land and take out these people. Oh, but they're giants. They're bigger than us. I don't know if we can do it. And there's so many times where they left people groups there that are a thorn in God's people's side all the way through because they didn't trust God. God was giving them the wind. He was giving them the victory. He was giving them his blessing and his permission and his plan. And yet they did not walk in it. And then Jesus is going to come. And this Messiah is going to come. And, he, and the government will be on his shoulders. His dominion will reign. And not only will the dominion reign over the earth, but his dominion will reign even into heaven and forevermore. And they're like, yes, come in with a sword. Don't come in as the prince of peace. That's, but that's what he says here. He's a mighty God, but the prince of peace. He will be the incarnation of God, and he will have rule over the world, but he might not have it in the way that Israel desired, that Israel expected. 
And I think sometimes for us, as flesh, as humans, we kind of have that same desire sometimes. We've, we feel like, man, God, make this right. Make it right, right now, on my terms. Lord, I know you can do it. You have all the power and the might to do it. Just do it. Make it right. And it frustrates us that maybe now is not his time. That maybe he's not going to come in with authority and do it the way that we thought it ought to be done. Or, and maybe it's... It's different. I think that's part of the struggle with Israel. But he will be the incarnation of God. He will rule over the world. Second thing this morning, he will have the supernatural ability to make wrong things right. Hallelujah. He's going to have the supernatural ability to make wrong things right. Let's just look at the first five verses of our passage here. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Can you imagine that day? What's that going to feel like? And then it talks about in the past how he'd humble the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Interesting. As we pull back the curtain and we get this nugget of truth and, and a prophetic utterance in the even of itself, is Isaiah is letting them know here that Galilee of the nations, that in the future we will honor Galilee. And if you read that, you're like, Galilee? What, what's so special about Galilee? What's going to come out of Galilee? Oh, don't forget Nazareth, the town where Jesus grew up, where his father was the carpenter. Joseph was from Nazareth. And Jesus would spend many of his formative years in the town of Nazareth in Galilee. And because Jesus was Galilean, and we know that from reading Matthew uh, chapter 4, Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah references the area of Jesus' upbringing and the beginning of his ministry being blessed, being blessed and being honored because it's in Galilee. The rest of verse 1 there, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then we get to verse 2 and it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I'm not going to get much into that today. There's so much we can unpack there, but we're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. And you think about all the times where God did that for Israel. He enlarged not only their territory, he enlarged their people. Remember the promise given in Genesis chapter, chapter 12 to Abraham. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go into the land I will show you and I'll make you a great nation. I'll make your name great. And all the world will be blessed through you. There was this supernatural ability that God had to do that. And he says, you have enlarged nation, you've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. How satisfying is it when you finally get to the harvest, right? All the work you've put in, all the toil, all the watering, all the fertilizer, all the keeping the bugs out. And you finally get to that day where you get to pick the produce, and how satisfying is that? And it's a day of rejoicing, and, and he's using that as, as imagery here. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors that have been off in fighting war. When, when the, warrior, the warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder, all that they have overtaken, maybe it's the riches of another kingdom, or maybe it's just people's material possessions, but they come home and they divide the plunder, and there's this time of rejoicing. And then I love verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them. 
When I first read that, I thought, okay, as in the days of Midian's defeat, there's got to be some meaning there. Why, you know, does that jog anything for you? The day of Midian's defeat, so evidently the Israelites beat the Midians at some time. And then if you want to uh, look it up and read the story, you go to Judges chapter 7. And you read the story of a guy named Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? He gets the army from thousands down to just, just a few hundred men. And they're going to go against the Midianites who are down in this valley. And, and the Israelites are up on, on this, the side of this mountain. And they sneak up on them at night unarmed. I'm like, well, that's the way to take out a people group. First of all, reduce your army to a few hundred men. Okay, and then surround them unarmed. That sounds like a smart plan. Well, actually, it's a God plan. God's plan is higher and better than us. Uh, we don't understand his ways sometimes, but this was his ways. And if you remember the story, they had torches. They lit the torches, and, and the people down in the valley, the Midianites, looked around. They were just so scared. Their knees were knocking. They were starting to go crazy. And then they had these pitchers, and they broke the pitchers, and there was this loud clasp. And then they had the trumpets, and they were blowing the trumpets, and there was chaos that ensued down in the valley where the Midianites were. And they just felt like they were surrounded by this huge army, and they, they basically self-inflict wounds. They're running into each other. They're killing each other. They've lit fire in the village. I mean, it's going, it's going bad. And then they, they leave, and Israel is victorious. That is what he's referencing here in verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, do you remember how easy that was? That's, that's what's jogging in their memory here. Do you remember Midian's defeat? That was so easy. I mean, we had a few jars, some torches, and some horns, and that's how we defeated them. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the, the yoke, the, the, the tension, the war that was going on between the Israelites and the Midianites. And then he goes on and says, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. That Jesus, the Son of God, when he comes in the world, he's going to shatter the yoke that burdens people, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Think about this. Bring this even into context of the time of Jesus when he's born. Bring it in even, even into the context of today. The yoke, he's going to shatter the yoke that burdens people in their sinfulness. The bar of sin, the weight of sin that is across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors. That would be Satan himself that tempts us and leads us down this path of sinfulness. Yes, Jesus will come and it'll be like the day of Midian's defeat. It'll be easy for us. Because he's going to shatter the yoke that burdens people and the bar across the shoulders and the rod of the oppressor. And then you get to verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood. All those times that they were out in battle will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why? Because the Prince of Peace is here. And there's going to be no more war. There's going to be no more pain. And he's the mighty God and he's the Prince of Peace. And because of that peace and because of the ease that Jesus is going to make available for us to win the battles in life, if we'll just accept him as Savior and Lord and live our lives according to his word, if we will do that, we have the ease of a Midian's defeat before us. And the warrior's boots that were used in battle and all of those garments that were rolled in blood will be destined for burning because you're not going to need them anymore because Jesus gives us the victory. He will be, these will be destined for burning. They will be fuel for the fire. He will have the supernatural ability to make wrong things right. And then we get in the middle of verse 7. It says that he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He will establish it. 
He will uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. That's, that's what you desire. You desire that life be truth and be full of justice and righteousness. We long for a righteous world, and he will supernaturally establish that and make wrong things right. Third thing we can learn from our passage today is that he will be our counsel, he will be our strength, he will be our leader, and he will be our peace. He'll be our counsel, our strength, our leader, and our peace. Of course, we find this in verse 6 where it says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and his dominion will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called. That word the Hebrew called is very interesting. It it actually uh, means acknowledged. So it's not like he's just called, like, oh, he's going to be called these names. We're going to reference him as these names. No, it's saying he'll be acknowledged. He will be known. These will be tied to Christ's identity. What are they? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Wow. He'll be our counselor, our strength, our leader, and our peace. Let's break those down. Sometimes we in life feel the need when relationships are out of sorts, when life's not going the way we thought it should, when we're struggling maybe in deep depression or sadness, we might go to a counselor. Might go to somebody and they help us. They give us perspective. Sometimes uh, they have this ability to give us some tools and to give us some tools on how do we cope with this circumstance or cope with this relationship. And and they give us these tools. And yet there's one beyond what we can receive in, in our counselors here in this world. There's a supernatural counselor. In fact, he's called in here the wonderful counselor. And the wonderful counselor gives us his word and his counsel and his advice from the very word of God in the scriptures. And sometimes I think a counselor, talking to a counselor in this world can do a lot of good. But I wonder sometimes if we go to a counselor and we don't go see and spend some time with the wonderful counselor, what might we be missing out on? We need to be a people of the word. We need to be in the word. We need to read the very words of God and his son, Jesus Christ. If you're one of those that you're saying, hey, that's me right now, I'm struggling. In fact, sometimes uh, psychologists today say that the holidays are the worst time of year uh, for depression. Maybe spend some more time with the wonderful counselor and soak in the promises of truth in his word and find your hope in the one who is the hope giver, the hope establisher, the one that has all the power he needs to do it, the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. The the, the next reference is that he is the mighty God. He has power. He has might. He is part of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has supernatural abilities. Now, again, we, we have Israel that says, hey, come in as a conquering king on a horse with a sword, and let's Let's go kick, kick some people out of our land. Let's, let's make thing, all the evil, just kill all the evil in the world and just set everything right just like we desire. And Jesus, he could do it that way, but that was not God's plan. But was Jesus mighty 
Was he a mighty God? Was he mighty in power? He shows it all throughout his ministry, the supernatural power that he has. Do you remember how it began? At a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Cana. His mom comes to him and is like, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now, I know to us today, we're like, they're out of wine, so what? You know, I'm not like drinking and becoming, you know, under the influence anyway. And, you know, it, it was different back then. It was a different sort of alcohol, and, and it wasn't for the point of just being inebriated. That was not what it was about. It was a cultural thing, and you had wine at the wedding, and these wedding celebrations went on for days. And usually the, the custom was that you'd bring out the good stuff at the beginning and you might have like, you know, the weaker stuff at the end. Well, they run out of wine. Huge faux pas. I mean, shame upon the family, not good. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I know you've got supernatural power. I know you are the mighty God. I do something about it. And if you remember, Jesus' first response is like, Mom, Now's not the time for this. It's not, I don't want my might to be established in this way. I mean, making wine, I mean, I can, I can raise the dead. Come on now. You know, don't, don't start with like some wine making. But Jesus says, okay, I see the situation. All right, bring me, bring me, bring me the cisterns. Bring me all the jars. Fill them up to the top with water. And he turns water into wine, his first miracle, showing his might. They take it to the wedding feast. What's interesting about it is they're like, Wow. This, this is great. In fact, this is the best wine we've tasted. In fact, you have saved the best for last. I mean, the stuff we were drinking yesterday was not that great. This, this is like the best stuff yet. And Jesus is like, yeah. Mighty God. And he goes on and he shows his might again and again and again. How about the might of fasting for 40 days and then having Satan come and tempting him? In his weakest moment in the flesh, maybe right up there with the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, after fasting for 40 days, he's weak in the flesh, and Satan comes and offers him bread for food and comes and offers him the kingdom of the world. And in that moment, he calls upon the mighty word of God and he shows his might. This is the same Jesus that can make blind people see, make lame people walk, does miraculous powers and mighty works of healing. In fact, Jesus can raise the dead. And he's been raising dead hearts ever since. He's the mighty God. The next description there is he's the everlasting father. Sometimes I think we live in a world that's got father really confused or skewed. And sometimes there aren't just many good examples of, a, of an earthly father today. I'm thankful that here in God's church, I see many families with godly fathers. And it's so important that men should be the leader, the spiritual leader of their home. That they should be the primary Jesus lover under their roof. And they should be the ones leading their family spiritually. But even if you didn't have that, maybe you didn't grow up with that example, maybe you don't even know your dad, he, he was absentee, or maybe he left. Maybe, maybe, maybe There's a whole lot of different scenarios and reasons that that could happen. But maybe you've always had this skewed vision of who dad is or who dad's supposed to be. And here in Scripture, it says that he's going to be the everlasting father. He's going to be the real deal, and he's going to be forever. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's going to be one that loves you and shows you what the heavenly father is, is this everlasting father that we get in his son, 
Jesus Christ. And then it says that he is the prince of peace. So much turmoil, so much, so much rebellion, so much stress and anxiety and the anxiousness of life. And it seems like everybody that I encounter says, man, I just need a little peace. Well, I tell you what, to be completely honest with you, I don't think you can know peace until you know the Prince of Peace and have a relationship with Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you what, there is something supernatural that happens, folks. When you call upon his name and you say, you are my Savior and my Lord and I put my faith in you, and you get buried in a watery grave of baptism and you're raised to walk in newness of life, as it says in Romans 6, man, you're going to know peace. You will feel different because now you have the Prince of Peace. Now you have the Holy Spirit of God. Not only is Emmanuel God with us, now you have the Holy Spirit God in us. God in you. Bringing his peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you go through these names and these reference to who Jesus is and you realize how awesome that he's going to be. If you're looking ahead as the Israelites were at this time, how awesome he will be even in the context of the first century of the early church in the book of Acts and even to Christians today. And remember the context of Isaiah here. Remember what we talked about last week. God's people are in sin and rebellion. They're in a very dark season with a wicked leader in King Ahaz. And God is saying, hey, this, this kingdom's going to be different. We're going to rule in peace. We're going to counsel those in need. We're going to be mighty to save. We're going to be an everlasting father, and there's going to be justice and righteousness in this kingdom. Emmanuel, God with us, will be the exact opposite of what God's people had in their leadership at that moment. I think it just blew their minds the hope. It came out of the prophet Isaiah's mouth. He'll be our counsel, our strength, our leader, and our peace. And the last thing this morning, he will ultimately fulfill God's passionate plan for humans. This one that is coming, he will ultimately fill, fulfill God's passionate plan for humans. Let's read about that in verse 7. Of the greatness of his dominion, his government, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He's establishing it. He's upholding it with what? With justice and righteousness from that time on and forever into the future. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's unpack this. The greatness of his dominion and peace, there'll be no end. And then it's interesting because the, the middle part of verse 7 says that it will be established, the reign of David's throne, establishing, upholding justice, righteousness, from that time on and forever. So it says there'll be no end. It'll be from that time on and forever. There'll be a kingdom established here on the earth. And the ways of Jesus Christ, which he will call people to walk when they are on this earth, but there's more. 
There's this kingdom beyond the earth. It's both for now and it's into heaven, into the future. And the zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. That word zeal, sometimes I think, you know, we don't use that very often. Oh, you have great zeal, you know. And it was like, what does that mean exactly? It's a deep passion. The deep passion that God has for us as his creation made in his likeness. The deep passion he has for us, the deep love and passion he has for us will accomplish this. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Who would take their only child, send him off into the evil world, and have him ultimately be sacrificed for the sins of other people? The only way I can put this and like try to conceptualize this in my mind is that to you know as a dad is to sacrifice one of my daughters for you because of your sin. No. Not in a million years. It doesn't even make sense to me. There, there's no way that I can love you that much. And yet, this is what God did. This is how much he loves us. This is why the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That he will send his son into the world. Though he be a wonderful counselor, though he be a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace, and he will accomplish these things because of his passion, the zeal he has for all of mankind. And ultimately, God's plan would be realized and acted out. His passionate plan for humans was only because of Jesus Christ. And when you think about that, and you think about this time of year, and you think about the focus of what our attention is to be on. It's not to be on the trimmings and the wrappings and the songs and the paper and the presents and the parties and all those things. It needs to be on Jesus Christ. When we have focused attention, right? Focused attention on Jesus. Do you know what that is? It's worship. It's worship. In the Christmas story, it's what the shepherds did, right? They got the news. They said, hey, go over to Bethlehem and see it for yourself. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Just right over there in Bethlehem, go see for yourself. And what was the shepherd's response? What was the response? They went and saw and they were so excited, they, they, they worshiped him, and they were so excited about what they saw, it says that they went and told everyone about it. Big news. You think about the Magi, the wise men from the east. I mean, they're, they're not even Israelites. I mean, they're foreigners. They're, they're probably from the lineage of Ishmael. Go back to Genesis and read that story. And they come following what? The star, the light in the sky, the star. And when they come and encounter Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that's going to establish his rule and reign and righteousness and peace forever. He's going to sit on the throne of David forever. When they see him, they take a knee. Their response is worship. And they present him gifts so costly. We can't even put it in today, today's terms like bringing Jesus a million dollars. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they worship. They focus their attention on him. 
This is a passage here in Isaiah chapter 9 where I think it beckons us. Focus your attention on Christ. Focus your attention on him and worship. And make it happen this Christmas season so you can experience him. And you can experience all the prophecy that's given about him. That we see come into fruition in the New Testament when we read it. That we even see in the Christmas story. In Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel when we read it. 